What's up, everybody? Welcome to the What's Up Finance podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we discuss what's up with the market, the economy, and any worthwhile topics and discussions happening in the world of finance. My name is Cam Delacanati, and joining me is a special guest, one of the writers of the What's Up Friday newsletter, and my friend, Brent Gordon. Hi, Brent. Hey, Camden. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Brent recently graduated from Chapman University in 2019, where he studied finance and economics. He is a CFA level two candidate, and he's a wizard in the economic, financial, and the fintech space. Hi, Brent. So first, I'm going to ask you a couple questions about your past experiences and about your life and about where you see your future going. Maybe we'll talk more into depth about your uh, experience in the fintech space. So my first question is, what was the most interesting and impactful thing you learned at Chapman? Honestly, it would have to be the network of people I've made. Like you, a few other people I'm currently working with. It's just, I, yeah, I learned a lot there, but definitely the most impactful thing that I um, found at Chapman was were the people. And honestly, through that, I was able to see different mindsets that I never would have seen if I didn't go to school. I am graduating this year in 2020 and you graduated last year and I would say that my Chapman experience has been similar to yours where I've learned more outside of school through my endeavors and projects and self-study than inside of school you feel the same way yeah I definitely agree but there are a couple good teachers that you've had like Fidel and most likely Mark Skusin Scouse yeah Yes. Uh, did you enjoy school? Is school for everybody? Uh, do you plan on going to graduate school someday? Was Chapman the right choice for you? Um, yeah, personally, I enjoyed school more so social than academic. Like, I'm not a big fan of academia, but that's not why I'm here. Um, yeah, honestly, I'm kind of torn between if school is for everybody on one side i want to say yeah it increases human capital for the world but on the other hand people can just go to trade school and increase human capital that way um i think everyone should go to one form of higher education if not just to increase social skills but yeah i i think some type of school above high school is should be for everyone and but for the profession that you want to pursue school is required correct yeah, for finance, yeah, definitely. But not many people want to go into this industry. And in regards to masters, um, I'm kind of torn. I kind of want to get a masters, but um, I'm getting the CFA right now, so I don't need the masters per se. But I'll probably end up going for a MFE, Masters of Financial Engineering, in the future. So let's delve into that. So the CFA. So you successfully passed the CFA level one. How is the exam? What made you want to take uh, the route of, of getting your CFA? Uh, what is the CFA? Can you give us a little detail on that? Yeah. So um, one of my favorite teachers at Chapman brought it up to me about the CFA. It's the uh, Chartered Financial Analyst. It's a professional designation that is the most um, it, it's the most accepted um professional certification in the industry it's it's basically a a form of 
confidence that you can instill on your clients that you are, um, that you're there, that you know your shit. So through its difficulty, it is uh, a way to show clients and employers that you know your shit and that you're an expert in the financial world. Uh, not expert, but it's it's just that you know your stuff that you that you spent three years and you're dedicated to the topic. Kind of, um, it's not so difficult as tedious. It's a lot of information. It's not anything. Any section by itself would be considered wouldn't be considered all that hard. But the fact that we're linking 11 together on a single test you can take once a year is what makes it difficult. So you said it takes around three years. There's three different levels. Uh, and you take one, so you you apply for it in December and you take it in June, or you apply for it in June, you take it in December. Well, you can take uh, one in December. Everything else is June. So if you fail level two, you have to wait another year to take it. Same with level Oh, wow. Moving forward, uh, you've also had some work experience with Halbert Hargrove while you were in college. Uh, what was the biggest learning experience from that? Yeah, great firm. Um, Halbert Hargrove was the firm that gave me my first internship experience for my junior or sophomore going into junior and junior going into senior year. Um, honestly, it taught me a lot about the professional world. Like, great people. Great team, great investment ideas. Um, biggest learning experience that I got was that client-facing sales role in finance was not for me, to be quite honest. Um, going into school, I really thought I wanted to do private wealth management, and I realized that is not what I wanted to do. Why? What made you uh, learn that? Honestly, like I just, I, I couldn't do sales. Like I'm just not a good salesman. Like I'm way too honest where i just sales is just not for me so private wealth management consisted of you uh cold calling finding clients to no not pitch a... the moldy idea of managing their wealth no or what were your tasks i was mainly day-to-day tasks like um like Fulfilling client requests, um, pulling documents, um, overviewing investment um, returns. Like, so what sales aspects are there in private wealth management? Post-intern, it's, it's the actual job. It's not the part-time, it's the full-time. would be the sales. And you weren't ready for that? You, you, uh, didn't, you not, didn't feel comfortable? You didn't want to go into that? Not that I wasn't ready, but I just didn't want to go into it. It's, and you're currently working on some fintech. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? I can't really go too far into it, but it's in regards to non-fungible tokens and um, permission blockchains, so like Hyperledger, NFTs. Are, are, you, are you creating these, or are you helping structure them? Or are you are you doing the mathematics behind them? Um, it's pretty new like the entire topic of permission blockchains are pretty new um ibm is leading the charge but um there's holes that can be filled easily such as nfts and such perfect so uh, going into your experience and knowledge of economics 
let's go. Uh, let's see what your current sentiment of the U.S. business cycle is. Where do you think we're heading? Where do you think we are? Uh, we're ending twenty nineteen and beginning twenty twenty soon. So, what is your what is your forecast for twenty twenty? Yeah, so I've been one of the few that have held a very bullish outlook on the economy. Um, while everyone's been standing here and saying that our debt crisis is about to explode, that this trade war of China is killing our economy, that business confidence is at all-time lows, I've been saying quite the opposite. People have been saying that the yield curve inversion is forecasting a recession in 2020. I say, no, that's due to globalization. Personally, I think we're in a late-stage expansion with quite a few more years under the belt. Unless you believe the Fed can successfully mitigate the business cycle, which few people believe, but they seem to think... How would they be able to successfully mitigate the business cycle? Well, um, easing? Yeah, QE and uh, interest rate cuts. I believe that if they successfully um, cut interest rates at times and put money into the economy, that they can um, kind of mitigate downturns and just keep a constant... Um, expansion going, which is why we've seen this uh, massive expansion over the last 10 years or so. Now, you're not afraid that uh, the Federal Reserve will cut interest rates so far that it will go to zero or negative? No, I I don't see us monetizing our debt anytime soon. Um, I I know that they're in a position where they can, but I don't. I don't think they will. I think realistically, I had. I was. I had a massive bet that they were going to cut interest rates, but I was hoping they wouldn't. If that makes any sense, um, from an economic standpoint, I did not. I don't see why they cut interest rates. Our economy is doing fine. All the numbers are coming in as to be expected. They just cut based on, honestly, seemed like. The trade war drama is what um, Powell was saying. And also Trump influencing them to take uh, more uh, expansion actions and to help uh, borrowing become cheaper to increase investing. Um, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Fed says they're pretty um, outward looking, if that makes any sense. Um so I don't know how much influence Trump had. I think it was honestly more so they didn't want to be the Fed that um, started a massive uh, contraction. Like other economies, like we see in Germany. Yeah. Global slowdown, yeah. So I, with the 10-year being at 1.84 as of uh, Friday, do you, do you, they don't have much room to, to cut. Uh, do you think this could be a problem? Tenure that matters, it's the Fed fund rate, which is at like what one, what's near there? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's that's definitely a worry. We don't have much room if we go into a contraction to cut, but I don't think we are going to be anywhere close to a recession. I think that's brought on by the US being the or the US being the main deposit currency or uh, dollar. So realistically, it's been proven we can print as much money as we want with little side effect, where in reality it should cause massive inflation, it doesn't. So your outlook for 2020 is we will continue the expansion uh, at the current rate or at a slower rate, 
And uh, do you see us going into recession in 2021 or 2022? No, I think um, personally, I, I think the next big recession, not a small downturn, like in what we saw in December 2018, will be caused by the USD being replaced as the global reserve currency, which I don't see occurring before 2030. And the 2020 elections will have no influence? Um, the stock market? I mean, it will. Like, just volatility will increase realistically, but we've already seen that. No contractions. Um, well, we may, like, have, like, a month or two of just red, but I don't see it as being more than a few months. Like, I consider a recession multi-year, not just, like, a few months. That makes any sense? Yes. So recently, I had a job interview at this place called Stout, which is a small uh, investment firm and consultancy firm. And one of the questions the uh, employer asked was, if I were to buy a 10% equity stake in this phone company, and he pointed to a random product on the conference table, and the valuation for the company is $100 million today, would you buy it at the current price of $10 million, or would you buy it at a discount or premium? And what are the influences that would impact your buying decision? And it's a public company, and you only get 10% stake. Well, um, realistically, I'd have to look at the volume trader today, um, see if it's liquid. Um, if it's not liquid, I would have to add a liquidity discount for um, difficulty to uh, sell in the open market. Um, I would also then get a minority discount because I'm not buying a majority stake, and 10% is large enough to get a minority stake a discount. Um, so realistically, I'd, I'd get a discount. Um, the amount of discount I would have to run through a model with factors like where is this company based, what's the risk exposure I'd be looking at, and just a bunch of other factors like that. Would you So add? you'd buy at a discount, and yeah. you'd probably pay what, like... Uh, Seven million. I can't, six million. You, I can't give you an exact number. I need more details. What, what was your answer to that? No, the same exact thing. And then he asked, uh, uh, say that the CEO was looking to beef up his compensation package. And because you are a minority shareholder, you can't uh, have a say in whether he gets paid more or less or the same. Uh, would this hinder your buying? And I said yes because uh, uh, because he's looking to either pay more to himself. That means less to the shareholders. That's less to me. So I would also maybe decrease my uh, payment of one percent. Yeah. See, I, I kind of disagree to a point where um, increased incentives are always fine. It really depends on market going rate of compensation and where it's at right now. Um, he might be being paid under uh, murky compensation. But at 10%, you definitely do have a say. Uh, I would consider 10% to be even large enough for an activist uh, shareholder role where you can make or sway decision to a point. So I, I This is very similar to what happened with uh, the new Chipotle CEO, Brian Nickel. He recently worked for Taco Bell as their CEO. But in March uh, of 2018, he moved to Chipotle. 
and his compensation package was some ridiculous number, like $2.6 million, and shareholders were really mad about that. But in the uh, year and a half that he's been CEO, their stock price has almost tripled, adding close to $15 billion of market cap to the company. Yeah. So it's very interesting how compensation does uh, play a big role in people's investments and how, uh, how management is very important to the key to success of the company. It's difficult to be a leader. Not many people could. I don't think I could ever run a public company, so all to them. So moving forward uh, to the last questions we have based off of your financial wisdom, uh, if you were to open your own investment firm, and I think you do have uh, some ambitions of doing this in the future, what would your investment philosophy be? And would it be fundamental-based, technical-based, macro-based, growth-based, value-based? See, it's kind of funny that you're asking this question. I was sitting with one of my good friends that works at a uh, hedge fund out here in LA two nights ago at like 2.30 a.m. eating dinner. And uh, we were talking about- You love eating dinner late at night, huh? Well, yeah. I think it's better. Sorry, continue. Yeah. Um, But um, so I was saying that I've always wanted to open a discretionary global macro hedge fund where basically I have complete discretion to invest in whatever I want. And I really enjoy the global economy. So that's what I would do. And he rebuttaled with, why would you want a discretionary firm? People make so many mistakes. Why not leave it to algorithms and computer? And that kind of changed my my thinking. I would open a um, multifaceted firm that focused on macro, fundamentals, and a few other things, but with a technology base where the human had a overarching role but the technology actually were the ones to execute and choose these specific equities, if not um, basket equities to invest in past that point. So you'd have algorithms running every single day, all night long, making trades for you, markets all over the world. And you just have a supervision role over the algorithms in their investment decisions and how they're, yeah, would- uh, they're programmed. Uh, no, I would have the overarching decision and then leave the algorithms to um, handle into those um, specific strategies. So I would, we would make the strategies and then the um, algorithms would um, condense the strategy and create alpha into the strategy. If that makes any sense at that all. That makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you're an investor now. Uh, how do you choose your current investments? And with the investments you have currently, uh, do you rebalance your portfolio according to the business cycle? How often do you trade? Uh, or are you a buy and hold type of guy? Yeah, so I don't really delve into specific equities all that much. Um, I kind of do. I First, yeah, I'm, I'm more of a buy and hold type of person with a tactical, like, um, rebalancing depending on how certain sectors are doing. But um, I usually do portfolio strategies, run uh, equity screeners and um, I just create criteria and invest in that criteria. So like right now, I'm my entire portfolio is in high dividends, financial stability, and um, 
just kind of equities that mirror dividend aristocrats without the premium is they don't fill all the criteria. Like um, maybe they only increase dividends every 10 years instead of dividend aristocrat, which requires, I think, 20 years. So yeah, it's just entirely portfolio strategy based right now. What is your target dividend growth rate? Well, it's not about the dividend growth rate. It's more about the um, dividend yield. So I look for So what is it? Uh, well, the yield. Uh, I look over two percent, realistically. If they oh, wow, so yeah. nothing too crazy like eight, nine, ten percent. No, no, no. That's that does not fit in the model. Usually, they're not financial stable. These are some of the criteria like dividend payout less than sixty percent. So, like these firms are financial stable. So, realistically, it's a recession proof. So, like if I'm wrong with my call. And the like a market crashes. I'm betting that these equities won't do as bad as other ones because once they fall ten percent, their yields up to three percent or something like that. And there's there's a point where investors will start buying it for their yield. So the price will. Um, I can kind of designate a floor, like a value or risk kind of. So low REITs, low oil integration companies that pay like upwards of 10% dividend. I mean, I'll do like a uh, REOC where it's like a real estate income or something like that. But I don't really deal with REITs all that much. I don't like the uh, tax structure. What has been the biggest financial mistake that you've made in your life so far? Oh, that's hard. Um... Yeah, honestly, I'm used to investing in crypto because I liked the massive volatility and I've been burned a few times with that, but it's probably it. And Not last question, uh, what are your goals for the next five to 10 years? It's a hard question. Um, realistically, five years from now, I'd like the CFA designation. Um, I'd like to be starting my own firm, my own hedge fund, five, 10 years, five years, 10 years. I'd like to be a staple in the industry, realistically being 33. I think that's realistic at this point. So this week's podcast is on our newsletter. Uh, what's up 2019 and hello 2020. So we'll go over the market section and some of the content from the newsletter. But being Brent is one of our writers, he knows fairly well about the content that we send out. And he actually wrote one of the most uh, impressive pieces this week. So uh, one of the most interesting points in our market section was an analyst of 14 years of market returns across about uh, 1,889 companies finds that when they appointed female directors, they experienced two years of stock declines. Uh, Brent, what are your thoughts about this? And why would males have an advantage over females in company management? Personally, I think it's bullshit. Um, I think it's a factor of causation versus correlation. I think it's more so that... Um, um, it's just when a, when a new director changes, sometimes it has a negative impact. But I, honestly, I, I don't see this being a major impact on an equity price. I don't think anyone goes and sees a female being elected as a director and 
instantly sells the equity. I think it's more so bad corporate governance, uh, bad management. And I think this is simply a case of causation versus correlation. I, I, I think totally I, agree with you. Yes, it's not targeting females directly. It's because of the uh, change in uh, corporate structure that causes investors to be uncertain about the performance and growth of the company in the future. Uh, next, uh, with cash levels at the lowest level since 1997 and equity allocations near their highest levels since 1999 and 2007, it suggests investors are now functionally all in. Do you think this is accurate? No, I, I don't at all. Uh, I don't think investors are all in. I think actually a lot of people are on the sidelines right now. Um, I can tell you as a point of fact, many people thought we were going to get another uh, 2018 Q4. We haven't yet. Um, there's a lot of cash on the sidelines. Uh, mutual funds, or not mutual funds, um, pensions aren't all in, hedge funds aren't all in, global investors aren't all in. Oh, I, I don't think this is accurate. I think cash flows are just maybe, I, I don't know if it's a factor of percents, but I don't know where you got the data from, but I, I don't think cash levels are at the lowest levels, personally. Do you think the volume of investing is a factor in the current market growth? The volume of investing, I mean, yeah, of course. It's um, All investing is, it's it's fixed income um, between treasuries and corporate and the equity market just fighting for capital as um, people are getting more bullish on the uh, economic outlook. They move to equities and the equity market increases. It's it's all based on volume. It's, it's, it's market cap. It's all money going in, if that makes any sense. It's capital. It's capital inflows and outflows that uh, define how profitable a market is. So in regards to your current outlook for 2020, we've spoken in the past about uh, how the inversion of the interest uh, yield is not a good indicator of uh, future stock market performance. And even though a lot of people think that the inversion of the yield curve uh, signals a recession in the near future, you said that your theory behind it is uh, with interest rates uh, in foreign countries going negative uh, due to globalization, people, investors, institutions are moving their money into the U.S. Uh, due to our rates being positive and our uh, stock market continuing its expansion, this is causing interest rates to go down. Uh, and you've also, you've also said that you don't believe interest rates will continue to go down close to zero or negative. Uh, do you think that the U.S. will continue uh, being the capital uh, place of the world where people just hold their money? Or do you think other countries have a good chance, like China? Um, no to China, but yeah, I, I think the U.S. is currently the number one country in the world, and with that comes um, capital dominancy. When people are scared of global outlook, they move their money to the U.S., which kind of creates a self-fulfilling fallacy of, hey, if we all move our money to the U.S., then capital markets aren't going to decline. It's a store of value. Uh, in regards to the other thing, yeah, negative interest rates, the inverted yield curve is just, it's a byproduct of globalization. We've talked about this in length. It's when a majority of the world's in negative interest rates or their risk-free rates negative, they move their money to the U.S. with 
being okay making a percent and a half on long-term rates. It's not a fact of the inverted yield curve being an indicator of incoming recession. It's just a byproduct of globalization, a more connected world, easier uh, flow of capital from so one country. the ease of accessibility of moving large amounts of capital into the U.S. is due to globalization, correct? Uh, yeah, globalization, yeah. So it's a connected world. And negative interest rates in foreign countries just force them to move here to get um, not lose their money, kind of. And there's a difference between the Fed funds or in the interest rates. These interest rates on these bonds can move as much. I doubt they'll go negative, but Fed funds are, I don't think they're going to be cutting much more. Now, in regards to uh, our economy and their current expansion, key indicators to look at are manufacturing, consumer confidence, consumer spending, GDP growth, the household debt to GDP ratio, new home sales, and the number of new homes being built. Uh, do you see any of these indicators being more important than the others? And uh, which ones are more lagging versus leading? Yeah, so that's, that's kind of a difficult question. I think that's in there. Um, realistically, I don't see manufacturing be that massive of an indicator. PMI is under 60 or something, which technically indicates a recession. I think that, I, I personally, I don't believe that. Well, I just don't trust it. Um, I think it's more so a factor of the China trade war. Yeah, we're getting hurt, but China's getting hurt way worse, like, 3x while we're getting worse because uh, GDP is a factor of, I think, 22% of their GDP. Well, it's only 10% of ours. Um, but yeah, uh, realistically, the indicators I look at are consumer spending, which is actually increasing, uh, GDP growth, which is fine at 3%. I don't really care about debt. We can print as much money as we want currently with the U.S. being the global deposit currencies I was mentioning earlier. Um, yeah, home sales is great. New homes, being though it's all confidence. I also like looking into business confidence, personally. And Fed kind of gives a good um, indication of how our economy is doing. So when they hike, it shows the economy is doing well. When they cut, it's not the greatest. Now, this newsletter, you spoke about China's slowdown and how uh, they have experienced the third straight month of declines in its industrial profits, being down 9.9% in October over last October. What does this suggest, and can we see China slowing down in the future? Well, I mean, we can't really say anything about China. Like, There is no... Um, there's nothing public about data. So we have to trust the government that they're publishing accurate data. U.S. could be faking our numbers too. Um, in regards to China, uh, 6% GDP growth, I'm thinking that's more like three or four real terms, if that. Um, in regards to the industrial profits, that's literally just a factor of the trade war. We're China's major ex uh, export country. China exports most of their stuff to us with the second largest um, being a fraction of what we are. The fact that this trade war is um, hampering their ability to do this is just, it, that's that's all it's 9.9% is. Shows a massive overcapacity uh, capacity that they have right now for their factories. So we should see them cutting prices.
So if Charlie can uh, play around, manipulate their data that they release to the public, how can we as investors be uh, trustworthy of the whole system? I'm not, uh, personally. Uh, there's a good documentary called China Hustle, which just goes over this entire thing. Um, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't invest in China all that much, to be quite honest. Um, I have a little exposure through Hong Kong, but um, I don't, I, in regards to investing, I usually stick to capitalist countries where there's um, more regulation, more regulation. It's too risky for me. It's, it's massive risk of turn for China. Now, if someone were to invest in China, how would they hedge against this, this information risk? Um, well, they would just demand higher returns. Like um, Volatility for Chinese ADRs is... I don't, I don't know the exact number. I'm not going to just say a random number, but I'm assuming it's some X of U.S. volatility currently. Lastly, we spoke about valuation, and you and I both have uh, extensive experience in valuation through our studies at Chapman plus our uh, self-studying uh, outside of school. So we spoke about one of the many valuation models, the discounted cash flow model. This model forecasts a company's free cash flows into the future, discounts the free cash flows to the present to arrive at a present value. To calculate free cash flows, you take cash flows from operating activities and you subtract capital expenditures and acquisitions. Then by using the discount rate, which we refer as the weighted average cost of capital, which is the average cost of the company pays for their capital, you take the net present value of the future free cash flows to get the intrinsic value of the company. How accurate is the DCF model? Uh, what are its limitations? And why shouldn't somebody only rely on this valuation model? Um, yeah, so DCF, yeah, I've only learned that like eight times at Chapman. Um, but you, you did two. take that Wall Street prep course. and We did both pass it and get certified. They did teach yeah. us. Yeah, that was interesting, right? <laughs> How many days? I remember you and uh, Kevin coming over and all of us taking it together. Yeah, how many that days? Very that, was, that was long. I remember waking up at, what, 6 a.m. to go to that? Maybe 5 p.m.? Yeah. I took yeah. it two years in a row because I thought that it would mean something, but no. Yeah, I, I think I told you not to. But, um, yeah, no. Um, all valuation models rely on inputs, and they can all be manipulated, like... Um, to a point where it's it's literally all dependent on the um, uh, leaving growth rate, which is the uh, terminal value growth rate and the, and the interest rate that you use. Like it's it's easily manipulable. Like if I have a growth rate of five percent, which it really realistically shouldn't be more than long term GDP growth, it could overvalue a realistic valuation by twenty thirty percent. Valuation metrics are meant to um, confirm, not create a price target. And also with uh, the cash flow from operations being uh, hugely dependent on your net income, your revenue growth rates uh, have a huge determinant on what your free cash flows will be. And if you forecast this company to grow larger than it will be, you are overvaluing the company. 
So it takes a lot of uh, initiative and intuitiveness to be able to accurately forecast the company's uh, revenue to be able to get their intrinsic value to be somewhere in the correct ballpark. Uh, and that's why people uh, place limits on uh, their mispricing. So if you misprice the company more than 40%, then you can say, okay, yes, I will buy into it or I will short So that was the end of our newsletter section. So we'll go into the term of the week. So going along the lines of our valuation section, uh, the term of the week for this week is free cash flow, which is the cash a company produces through its operations, less the cost of expenditures on assets. And our book review for this week is The Spider Network. The wild story of a math genius, a gang of backstabbing bankers, and one of the greatest scams in financial history by David Enrich. This book is about the fraud bankers committed by manipulating and exploiting labor, which is the London interbank offered rate. So the way that they were able to explore it was traders would correlate with other bankers to alter their rates and the traders would trade derivatives on whether they would thought the rates would go up or down. And uh, after regulators investigated uh, these bankers, the banks were fined more than $9 billion for rigging LIBOR. And LIBOR is a rate that underpins over $300 trillion worth of loans worldwide. So with uh, LIBOR being so uh, easy to manipulate, uh, the world is trying to replace LIBOR with SOFR, which is the Secured Overnight Financing Rate. What are your thoughts on this, Brent? Yeah, I don't know why anyone thought it would ever be a good idea to give bankers control over their own interest rates and let them make derivative tools based on what they decide, which is... I understand the process, but who who would have ever thought they wouldn't manipulate that shit? No, like, it's so easy because say it's not, that there's 12 banks in the economy, in, in the world market, I mean, and each one uh, estimates what the rate would be for that day. The library would be the average of these rates. So one banker could uh, overestimate their uh, rate uh, to fulfill their needs and that would skew the whole average and then traders can trade on this. Well, it wasn't even one bank. It was, it was syndicates. It was banks coming together and them all over-exaggerating or underestimating these rates. Like it wasn't, but it wasn't the banks. It was certain, like it was, how it works is brokers, individual brokers from the bank submit them. So um, groups of brokers would get together and so many of them would uh, collude that it would become um, sufficient enough to manipulate the rates. And they colluded because they got compensation for being right on their trades. Well, and they got paid for uh, helping the traders uh, make their derivatives and trade on. Well, no, they, they held derivatives. So they would, they would be able to increase their returns, which look good on a firm basis. Like it's a, it's all about compensation in that. So what do you think of the SOFR? Do you think that uh, converting all of the $300 trillion worth of loans to this new interest rate uh, benchmark would be difficult? Uh, 
And if so, what do you think the world could achieve the whole transition? So um, I've actually looked into it quite a bit. So um, the all the loans and debt instruments that use LIBOR as a benchmark have um, they have um, stipulations in the contracts which state that benchmarks can change. So the SOFAR can easily take over for the LIBOR. It's just, uh, I guess it's just time will tell if it's successful. The only issue is derivative and debt instruments which don't follow a basic um, benchmark for uh, contracts which don't have the inclusion of switching of a LIBOR rate. But most of them do. A, a good majority of the um, debt derivatives, anything that uses LIBOR as a benchmark has the inclusion. So and, really, uh, for investors or for asset managers, how would this transition affect them? Uh, it shouldn't affect them all that much. Like um, the SOFAR and the LIBOR should be pretty close. The only difference is the SOFAR shouldn't be um, shouldn't have the ability to be manipulated. It wasn't being manipulated by all that much, like just basis points. But these basis points gave them absurd amount of capital from uh, the bets they made. Now, I don't have extensive knowledge on the uh, SOFR, but is this benchmark connected to the repo market at all? Um, I honestly don't have that much information based on it. Um, it, it looks like it's uh, based on uh, borrowing cash overnight, collateralized by Treasury Securities, which is what the Federal Reserve posted. Um, so it looks like it's just instead of um, brokers submitting it, it's just a average of the actual going in rate people got for overnight lending. Got it. Well, thank you, Brent, for being our special guest this week. Uh, we appreciate your feedback on our various topics, and you've definitely made this discussion much more interesting. Uh, and thank you all for listening in to the what's up podcast uh we've had a great conversation and uh hopefully you've enjoyed it as well we would love your feedback and to hear what's up in your lives feel free to shoot us an email to the address of the podcast notes below thank you brent yeah thanks for having me it was uh very enjoyable